Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. Hello, Renilka Bowery. I am here with uh, the Director of Advocacy and Communications for CARFAC, uh, NAVA's, oh, should we call each other sister organisation? Yes, why not? Yes, Sisters in Feminism and yes. um, Artist Awesomeness. CARFAC is Canadian Artist Representation, Front des Artistes Canadiens, um, and um, we have so much in common, our organisations, oh but first of all, welcome to Australia. Thank you. It is so beautiful and so lovely and such a lovely juxtaposition to where I have come from. <laughs> Tell us about where Which you come has, from. I think, 12 to 15 centimeters of snow right now. Mm. Uh, so yes, in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital, uh, we've just had record-breaking snowfall. But that's all happened while I've been here. Oh, my God. And yes, we are, yeah, deeply frightened by record-breaking fires. I mean, it's the, yes. it's the terror of... Um, of climate emergency and yes, something that the bushfires yeah something that artists are more and more concerned about but that unfortunately we're just not seeing politicians no. act on with any real responsibility no no and we've been seeing similar things in Canada as well Let's talk about Canada and what is happening um, for um, artists and best practice and artists' rights. So just over a year ago, I was in Canada for the 50th anniversary conference yes. of CARFAC. And thank you again for oh, the invitation. It was so wonderful to have you there. And oh, it was so, so wonderful here. to hear what other organizations that are like-minded to us are doing for their visual artists and just for artists in general. Because there aren't many of us, are there? <laughs> no, there really aren't. Yeah. There needs to be more. Yeah. And it was, uh, I should say, it was, although um, Carfac uh, invited me, it was thanks to the Copyright Agency that I got yes. to visit. Uh, so thank you, Copyright. But it was just so timely because I had been in the role for a year and I wanted to get a sense of um, not just what was going on around the world, but our two organisations had a you know, really important relationship for decades. And to hear uh, a lot of the culminating stuff of 50 years of CARFAC at that conference was amazing. So what were some of the highlights of celebrating those 50 years? So for me, it was really hearing the history from some of the founding people that were involved with CARFAC. So getting that on the ground, those, you know, those beginning stories from, from some of the founding members was super interesting. And to hear the conversations about how they spoke with people involved with the National Gallery in Canada and how they literally sat around a kitchen table figuring out what artists, what they themselves should be getting paid by our nation's gallery and how that has transformed over time, over the past 50 years, where it was a one-page document and is now extended to, it's a digital document now, so I don't know if 50 pages, if not more, 
but that transformation and the evolution of how you can go from from just you know one type of exhibition into reproductions of people's works into prints of people's works but then also now having that international perspective with having you Esther come and speak about what Australia has done and what Nava has done for visual artists in supporting them and to hear that you know despite you know, cultural differences, despite geographical distances, that there are still so many similarities in how artists around the world are treated, how they are talked about, but also how they are working to help themselves was truly remarkable. I think that's hugely important, like that, that in particular, that, yeah, we can be so far away and you know very different well in different countries also Canada and Australia though uh, we have either states or provinces that that are nationally federated there are huge differences legally um, you know in terms of um, you know Australia has federal labor laws Canada does not there are you know there there are things we have or you know Canada has a status of the artist legislation Mm -hmm. federally Australia does not but yeah that common um that shared sense of how artists are talked about and valued and then not valued that frustration around you know you can be an artist with all of the audacity and confidence in the world in your own practice but then when it comes to negotiating um your rights or 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 your fees somehow that that confidence just vanishes away and it's not even just that the confidence vanishes it's that other people I think start to put a different type of value on their work and we will often hear the argument of why can't I've I've had a senator ask me this where why can't art just be made for art's sake if we lived in an ideal world then yes it would be just for that but there is the pragmatic side where you know the 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 work doesn't always as it should pay all of the bills and not being able to do that then brings about issues in other areas of artists' life in trying to maintain their own sense of of happiness and self-care. And that's the truly heartbreaking thing, that work that gives people such a sense of joy, of, of curiosity, of challenge, of connectedness to one another, of that, you know, the way uh, an artwork or the experience of a work can just, you know, hit you in the gut mm-hmm. or make your mind do cartwheels or, you know, just radically shift your perspective. These are the things that, you know, deeply enrich our lives, that these are the things and the experiences that make life worth living. And yet somehow that broader valuing of the work of art or of artists in particular it's just not it's just not something that people far too commonly intuitively have no no Mm. we have we have a sticker actually on our door at our office which is it's the words starving artist but the starving is crossed out because that is there's there's that preconceived notion that art has to come from a sense of depression or has to come from from trials and tribulations and that's not necessarily true the artist doesn't have to be starving it should not be starving it is not the way that it should be 
you should be able to be an artist and sustain yourself. Absolutely. And of course, that affects not just, you know, the sustainability of, of an artist's career, but that is what, you know, strengthens a broader culture and a broader yes. politics. Yes. So something that Carfac do, um, uh, that Nava also does, is of course, having those conversations with politicians, making sure that we're not just getting the issues top of mind for them, but really engaging them in a conversation where they're having to articulate what's of value. Yes. Um, Tell us about some of the some of the fun stories, the frustrations (laughs) of talking to politicians. To talking to politicians. Some of some of them, a large number of them are very interested. A lot of them do value art and understand that it holds meaning for various people and in various ways. So we do see a lot of politicians that are engaged in their local communities, um, whether it's performing arts, visual, dance, theater, all, all aspects, musicians even. But there are there are the occasional few which sometimes need to be reminded or maybe even led down a path of being aware that there are other avenues that can support artists as well. So one example, a conversation that I had with an MP during our Arts Day on the Hill, where a lot of arts organizations go and meet and talk about their various issues or, or requests for changes um, in Parliament was with one MP who had a number of, of beautiful pieces of work in her in her office. And I happen to be familiar with, with that artist. And we, Carfac, is trying to get the artist resale scheme legislated in Canada. And I was able to point out, you know, this artist's work that you have and really love, their work is being auctioned off for X amount of money over in the UK right now. If we had a reciprocal agreement, this artist would see a royalty percentage from that sale. And they were not aware that that was a thing that artists could or even should receive. And knowing that that the resale scheme exists in over 95 other countries, and is including a reciprocal, Australia. including <laughs> Australia, which yeah. is our model, which is our model for for bringing the resale scheme to Canada. Yeah, that that changes their their perception a little bit when they can be reminded that it's not just a direct buy and sale of a good. There's commercial value, but there's value culturally as well in our nation's culture overseas. And that's just such a great example of a changing moment where you've got a politician who is, you know, they're thrilled to have someone from the arts in their office. They, they want to tell you about this work and what it means to yes. them. And then you're able to connect that this is not just, you know, this work isn't just, you know, abstracted from the world or from labour or from the economy. This work is actually created by an artist and yes. that artist is trying to sustain a career. Yes. And, you know, we so often you'll see you know, report in the news that so-and-so work sold for X thousand or even X million. Yeah. And chances are, you know, that is not a primary sale and the no. artist is getting little or possibly even none of that money, depending on where it's been sold. Exactly, exactly. And that's another conversation I have just in general with people, not necessarily MPs, but, you know, that they will see those those very, very high numbers and and they're like, that's, in, that's insane. That's, that's crazy that that's going for that much money. Sure, but who's actually on the receiving end of those monies? How is that money breaking down into people's pockets? Because more often than not, like you said, it's not going to the artist. 
And that is the, it kind of, you know, you think of that, the sort of twin cliche that people have in their minds, that some people have in their minds about artists. On the one hand, artists are, you know, like you're saying, starving, struggling, you know, on some kind of, you know, fringe of, of society. But then on the other hand, there's this notion that artists are an elite, that they are somehow, you know, coddled or protected mm-hmm. from or, or shielded from, you know, the sort of the, the practical realities of, of life and of course the the reality is that artists work in more and more complex hybrid ways you know this notion of the gig economy and the portfolio career is uh was you know named for artists yes you know reports and things about the future of work that we see you know from a range of different places you know from uh researchers and think tanks to the imf and the world bank you yes. can look at what's the future of work going to look like and what skills are going to be needed in the future and number one is always creativity exactly it's the skill that's not going to be you know automated or replaced by robots which it seems to be you know the, the 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 current big fear of what the future might look like but it's also the skill and the approach that is going to be most needed to tackle those huge things like climate change you know the the big complex problems that artists are tackling through their work um, all the time trying to shift thinking and that politicians are not no, and it's the ingenuity that's required too. Because, like you said, there's not not everything can be automated. So we are still going to need thinkers, people that are thinking outside of the box, and being able to put those ideas into practice. So that's just the most necessary element of all. And another area is is just the self-care for artists as well. Um, A lot of artists work on their own and they work in insular areas. So they'll often just be working in their studios by themselves or, you know, they'll have a couple of, of studio mates that they will share a space with. But more often than not, artists are working by themselves and not as part of a larger company. And so who do they go to when, when they need healthcare or insurance or anything else, they have to rely on themselves. And so it's their way of thinking that, okay, what do I do next to get X, Y, or Z done? And that's the real, you know, the, that isolation and and the sense of, yeah, how do I kind of connect up both the practicalities of what I need against what can be, you know, the daily work of, of being an artist is such a, it, it's a massive energy drain on the brain it's a burden on the soul it's a you know it is it's a hugely complex you know thing to be doing to be kind of thinking about a work thinking about you know the whole kind of the practicalities the economics of how am I going to get this out there and then you know those issues of what it takes to be an artist and, Mm -hmm. and survive as an artist you know, in essentials remain the same over time. And yet the world has changed a lot. The way that politics is done or talked about or publicly publicly communicated has changed. Things that were really solid foundations of politics. I think about here in Australia, mm-hmm. things like workers' rights to the union movement and the, the, the accord agreements of the 80s and, you know, workplace health and safety and, you know, aspects of education, public health being strongly publicly supported and the arts being publicly supported and well-funded. Yes. The arts publishing is also in decline. There's so much that has changed. And we've also got this situation where... 
you know, at least um, in two of the other big English-speaking world countries that are not Australia and Canada, <laughs> we have political leadership which is outwardly, explicitly dismissive of expertise, which is locked in a very selfish, self-interested, you know, small-p politics that distracts from what the big issues are. So if we think about how Carfax work has changed over 50 years and your work as Director of advocacy and communications. How do you see, I guess, the sort of focus and language of the advocacy that CARFAC is doing now as compared to, say, in the past? Like, how how is CARFAC having to engage with or sometimes even co-opt the language of the contemporary politics in order to get the arts message heard and and drive real action? So really what it comes down to for me is breaking down the information into manageable pieces. And by that I mean making sure that the message that we're conveying is not just the high-level government speak or the high-level academic speak, that it is something that everybody can relate to, regardless of whether they are an artist, regardless of education level, regardless of the the sector that they work in, because art surrounds us. And it's not to get too lofty in that in that messaging or anything, but it literally does surround us every day. And so it's it's something that's accessible in various forms to everybody. That is my personal approach when it comes to trying to get the message across to people. It's that I I look at everybody as relatively the same and everybody wants to have an understanding of the world around them. And so if we can get the messaging to not just be about, well, copyright policy needs to change in the following ways or policy management speak in general can be very, very dry. And if you look at a copyright act, it is it is not a fun thrill ride. It's not the latest <laughs> the Fast and Furious great movie. legislation was, though. How great would that be? It would be amazing. <laughs> it would be so much more fun. But then also, of course, it wouldn't get, you know, the full, the full scope of, of what needed to be done. So it's just about managing that language and and making sure that it's accessible. And it shouldn't, information should not be inaccessible to people. Understanding is just a fundamental human quality that we should all have. Absolutely. It's kind of um, sort of comparing the Australian political situation with with Canada and you've just had an election. Yes. Um, How would you characterise the the kind of um what's the word the 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 culture of politics in Canada at the moment in terms of the the leadership and the kinds of values I guess that Canadians would look to their government and think okay that's what they stand for don't know if I have a good answer for that (laughs) I mean who is Justin Trudeau That is a question so many people have. He is more than a man. No, I mean, there's a lot of relief that people felt with with the outcome of the Canadian election. There's a sense of, okay, we're giving him a second chance. We're giving this party a second chance to make sure that they follow through with the promises that that they made the first time around. Um, And I think that's fair to say for any election at any time of year in any country is that we have expectations of our politicians and they have a commitment to meet with us. So I think we are hopeful 
I think we are looking at the government with a more critical eye and are being more aware of the policies that affect us personally, but also those around us. Because there have been many stories of people not willing to allow systemic abuses to continue, regardless of the sector that they are happening in, if it's in the visual arts or or in commercial business. I think people are just becoming more aware of, of how we relate to each other. And so we're looking for our politicians to make sure that we are safe, including, including from them. I really like the way you've just put that because I think that awareness of, yeah, that awareness of how the way that we relate to each other affects everything, you know, affects our resilience, our health, our future, our mental health, affects, you know, the way that we make decisions, particularly the way that politicians make decisions. And Trudeau is someone who has, you know, made a thing of coming across in a certain approachable, accessible, you know, charismatic sort of way. And when you're like that as a politician, you raise the bar really, really high, don't you? Like there's a sense of there's an honesty and a transparency that you expect. And then um, just as you were saying about, you know, that sense that Canadians like the he hasn't been re-elected because people are like, yeah, get this guy back in. Yeah. The sense is, okay, we'll give him another chance, which which suggests that there has been that sort of that realization, that kind of okay, so we've elected someone who mm-hmm. was that charismatic, seemingly accessible guy. Then we found out some realities, but we're sort of you know okay, we're we're giving you a second chance, and and that's something that uh, I imagine in terms of the shifting of that culture uh, in people's minds. I imagine it makes people, particularly in a position like yours, that's kind of extra more mindful about. When you talk to a politician, have I really got a commitment? Yes. What am I hearing from you? Yes, yes. There's more follow-up that mm. is required because you can't just expect the politicians to, or, or any parliamentarian, to come after you. You have to go after them and make sure that they are hearing you. Because if you want to see change happen, you can't be passive. And it's... It's just not going to work that way. You need to have your voice be heard. And this was what was so important about our election was I'm also part of a coalition of arts organizations. And so our messaging out to people was, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't care who you vote for, just vote. If there's a particular message that you want to have be heard by your politicians, talk to them, speak to them, and then vote the way that defines your values because voting strategically and this is just my opinion voting strategically doesn't always make sense when you only think about one or two parties you need to vote with the sense of okay this is how i align and these are the people that that best represent my values and yeah to just to just make yourself be heard because your voice does matter and it sounds very idealistic but it's, it's so necessary 
to not sit back and let other people make decisions for you. The power structure doesn't work that way because power doesn't trickle down like that. No, it does not. Power becomes more and more concentrated. Um, and that's, yeah, I'm like jumping <laughs> in the air right now because like absolutely we cannot afford to be complacent. Our rights are something that we pursue. Politicians are not going to come to us. In Australia, we are one of the few countries in the world to have compulsory voting, which means that we don't have to campaign to encourage people to vote, but we do have to get people to think about, you know, why and, and how. And even the the proportion of what's called informal voting, which is where, you know, you take the ballot paper and just draw on it or you sort of get it wrong, oh, yes. uh, is fairly low. Because once you've, like, you, you've got to go and vote or you get fined. Yeah. So it's that kind of sunk cost reasoning of, like, I'm in the queue now. I might as well, you know, sort of take this seriously. But then we also have, you know, other countries in the English-speaking world, a bit of a complacency, which is the sort of the, that cultural conservatism, um, you know, the English-speaking world is not known for its, you know, really active modes of uh, demonstration or resistance mm-hmm. or, you know, really massive, well-organised um, consumer boycotts, which in mm-hmm. fact our government's trying to crack down on because uh, that's one way in which... People who buy things yes. are making it clear that the government needs to act on climate change. It's a, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Oh, my gosh, oh yes. Oh, my God. But that coalition you mentioned earlier of other organisations, you guys have had some extraordinary success of campaigning for 10 years to have the arts, the, the Federal Arts Fund doubled. Yes. And that was achieved under Trudeau, yes. which yes. is like big respect. That is super fantastic. But then there've also, there's also been some erosion at the province level where there are some provinces who aren't doing so well in arts funding what what's happening there I'm not sure to to what extent exactly. I mean, there's always been some some cutbacks to arts programming. There needs to be a better understanding of what the value is that arts bring to our culture. So the the model in which our provinces function is that, and I think it's very similar to Australia, is that a lot of organizations will get funding from provincial bodies, as well as the federal, depending on, on the status of the organization. And so sometimes it can be seen that more remote areas will receive less funding than others. So we'll see some urban areas like Toronto, for example, or Montreal or Vancouver, they will see a more proportionate um, or or raised rather um, amount of funding that they will receive. And we're trying to make it so that Funding across the entire country is is more fair and more equitable because it's the rural areas and it's the remote areas that also need that care when it comes to developing their culture. You know, it's not just a one nation country. There are so many people that are involved here. In, in Canada, rather. And so it needs to be, it needs to just be more fair, more equitable across the board. Yeah, it's a, yeah, absolutely similar here. We've got some states who are doing, you know, really ambitiously in arts funding and policy or, or in what is increasingly in some uh, jurisdictions called creative industries policy. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who, yeah, are just really falling behind. So here we're in the state of New South Wales. It has one of the lower per capita arts funding levels in Mm. Australia. 
and neighbouring Victoria to the south has one of the highest and, you know, thinks quite strategically about, you know, I guess the different elements of uh, the way that arts and creativity plugs into other sectors uh, as well. And that's something that they're starting to think more about federally too, the new strategic plan at the Australia Council and so on. And I had the great fortune of getting to know people from the Canada Council and, and other state bodies, uh, not just when I was in Canada, but also at the Ithaca World Summit. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, it's always great to just have that chance to talk about, like, yeah, what are the big issues in our countries and, and what's next? It's been, yeah, over a year now since I've yes. visited Canada. Nava and Carfax have had a long-term relationship all through, well, for decades, through the development of our code of practice, which was adapted by Carfax for the Best Practices Project. We draw on your work around uh, artist payments, uh, and that has, you know, been one of the bits of work and research that informed our recent draft. And yeah, just you know, so much more. And it's and it's been likewise. Uh, we've been we've been drawing from the Australian models of assisting artists for for a long time now. During our most recent Copyright Act review, so many organizations from Canada were presenting to our ministers, to our committees about this is happening in Australia. This is working in Australia. We need to bring this here. And this is it's not going to transplant you know, directly, but there are elements that that will strongly influence the Canadian policy structure that could support and the value of, of Canadian art and the and the art that's being made in, in Canada. It's so important to share that knowledge and to to be aware of those practices. So we've been learning a lot from our friends in Australia about how to do things, maybe not differently, but or not even better, but in a way that is going to be more sustainable. Yeah, and it's the sort of nuance of like, you know, this was pursued at this time because of these issues, but also because this political avenue was available and there's sort of a, uh, yeah, like there's there's different ways, there's better ways, but then there's also like, what does that tell us about the politics that made this possible? So, you know, in copyright, one of the big conversations around fair use versus fair dealing mm-hmm. and, you know, this notion that we increasingly have uh, from uh, those enormous uh, tech and social media companies who just want to create this global expectation that people should just be able to take someone's art or someone's writing and just do whatever they like with it. Oh, public domain. That is a phrase that <laughs> I have so many feelings about, public domain and teaching people that that because you see something out and about does not make it part of the public domain. That is, I think, the, the biggest thing for me when it comes to talking to people about art in the public sphere is that... Yeah, the the Copyright Act laws, you know, are very specific. You know, when something reaches the public domain for free use, that's that's there are specific laws for that. Just because you see something out does not mean that it is up for grabs to use as you see fit. There are permissions in place. There are licenses to request. That sounds like boring administrative work, but it helps the ecology of the art market. Absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, we sort of this notion that, yeah, something can just be kind of grabbed and taken. Yet we don't have this notion of, you know, like if you see 
a car out in the street. You're not just going to take it. You'd need a license to drive it. You probably need to, you know, own it. Like it's ideally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's so much in that public discussion about, like you were saying before, that advocacy focus of how do we, you know, use that language that is speaking not just to us but to others. And I think that's that's where, you know, drawing on our relationship is so super important because sometimes, yeah, we need to have those practice conversations with each other to sort of go, okay, well, like, how's this going to wash for the politician? And that was super great at the conference last year, meeting people who'd been founders of Carfac, meeting people who, you know, were just new and the various province bodies. Yeah, it was, um, and some, yeah, some super great relationships. And look, I think what, what some of this also just comes down to, you know, from a fundamental level is that inclusion matters. And when we can hear the voices from from those that don't often get heard, whether or not it's by because due to power structures or because literally somebody might be shy, somebody might feel awkward. If we can make the time to listen to those to those voices and hear those stories, we'll have a better understanding of how we should be operating as 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 people. It sounds very lofty, I know, but it's just a general way that would help all of us to just make sure that everybody has a voice and that everybody can be heard to make everything better. That doesn't sound lofty at all. That sounds real and important and why we all do what we do. Renuka, thank you so, so much for visiting at all, but also for having this conversation that we can now share. Thank you, Esther. It has been lovely being here. I don't know if I can say that enough. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.